Welcome to Question Period on this Sunday, February 26th. I'm Vashi Capellos. Today, more support for Ukraine, but how sustainable is it? You can trust that Canada stands shoulder to shoulder with you in the short and the long term. As Russia's war on Ukraine enters its second year, the feds announce they'll send more tanks. But what state does that leave the military's supply here? We are one-on-one -on -one with Defence Minister Anita Anand in moments. Then, Poland's ambassador to Canada and the British High Commissioner will be here together. Our fighter jets next for Ukraine, plus border battle. We as a country can close that border crossing. If Pierre Polyov wants to build a wall at Roxham Road, someone could do that. Concerns over irregular migrants crossing the Canada-U.S. border at Roxham Road in Quebec are sparking a heated political debate. Is it time for the Safe Third Country Agreement to be scrapped, or can negotiations with the U.S. save it? Former Deputy Prime Minister John Manley, who signed that agreement more than 20 years ago, will be here, and I'll ask him. And fighting foreign interference. We have talked openly for many, many years about the real threat of interference and attempts by interference at countries like China. The Trudeau government is being accused of dragging their feet on allegations of Chinese foreign interference in Canadian elections. The scrum is set to dig into that just ahead. Let's start with the war in Ukraine, now entering its second year. In a renewed show of support, the federal government says it's sending more of those Leopard 2 battle tanks. We will deliver four additional Leopard 2 tanks to the armed forces of Ukraine and an armored recovery vehicle. This is in addition to the four Leopard tanks already in the region, which CAF members are right now training Ukrainian tank members to use. Over the course of the war, the Canadian military has had to part with essential equipment like ammunition and howitzers. Canada will also be purchasing a national advanced surface-to-air missile defense system for Ukraine, despite not having one of our own. How sustainable is Canada's military support for Ukraine? With us now, National Defense Minister Anita Anand. Hi, Minister. Good to have you on our program today. I appreciate you making the time. Um, I have a number of questions about the announcement that you made today as far as tanks and other uh, support for Ukraine goes. But I actually wanted to start off and get your perspective on something we heard from Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky. He said today, or late last week rather, that uh, he expects Ukraine uh, can win this war this year. Do you agree with that assessment? I do. We have seen Ukraine take back territory in Kharkiv, in Kherson. In, we have seen them win in the north and the east and the south. So the fact of the matter is the Ukrainian armed forces are showing incredible resolve. And it is a matter of time before they win this war. On the donation uh, that you announced last week, in particular, uh, for example, the additional four Leopard 2 tanks, bringing the total to eight, uh, I think Canadians are very supportive of the level of support your government has shown, particularly with military aid to Ukraine. But there are a lot of Canadians who also uh, have con some concerns around our own military supply. How soon will those tanks be replaced here in Canada? Well, it's a very good question, and my priority is to ensure that the Canadian Armed Forces have the capabilities that they need to protect and defend this country. And this is the work that I am embarking on 
right away, making sure that I'm speaking with suppliers, making sure that in an era of very high demand, Canada has priority placement in the supply chain. I also want to indicate that it's not just four Leopard 2A4 battle tanks that we're sending to Ukraine in addition to the other four that we've already sent. Uh, we're also sending a tow truck or recovery vehicle to ensure that tanks can be moved where necessary, repaired when necessary. We're sending spare parts. We're sending 5,000 uh, rounds of 155 ammunition. And so, Vashi, we need to continue doing whatever is necessary to help Ukraine fight and win this war. They are fighting for their democracy, but they're also fighting for our democracy. I appreciate you laying out uh, sort of the extent, the extent of the uh, level of support, in particular, of military equipment that Canada has provided, both through this announcement and many others over the last year. And it's against that backdrop that I'm asking you about a timeline for replacing it. I appreciate the fact that you said you're trying to get Canada high on the priority list. Have you been successful in doing so, and again, I'll circle back to the question, if we're sending eight tanks now, how soon can they be replaced? Well, see, I want to mention that we're undertaking a defense policy update right now, which is a comprehensive review of capabilities that the Canadian Armed Forces need, not just in the area of tanks, but across the board. And that defense policy update is going to give us additional insight into the capabilities that we need to purchase for the Canadian Armed Forces. We need to make sure we are purchasing innovative and interoperable solutions. And that's going to require discussions with our suppliers in an era where demand is outstripping supply. And so the work is very serious, it is urgent, but it must be done methodically. And that's the effort that I'm bringing to the table together with the Department of National Defense. I, I take your point on the um, necessity of conducting that review and seeing what the outcome is of it. I've spoken, though, and I, many of my colleagues have interviewed General Wayne Eyre, the Chief of Defense Staff, who has many times out, outlined the gaps in those capabilities. And I think even at one point in December said about lots of the stuff that's being sent to Ukraine and the lack of replacements thus far, I wish we had it yesterday. Is your government working fast enough to ensure that in this more dangerous world where demand is outstripping supply, Canada is ready for the threats posed? We have to continue to work quickly and that's exactly why we are executing on Strong, Secure, Engaged where defence spending is increasing by 70%. That's exactly why we are moving to procure 88 F-35s from Lockheed Martin. That's exactly why we are working very hard to ensure the 15 Canadian surface combatants are going to be built. That's exactly why we are executing on the six Ar Arctic offshore patrol vessels, because we care deeply about the capabilities that the Canadian Armed Forces has and the capabilities that they need into the future, which is why we're doing the defence policy update to add a layer on to strong, secure, engaged our defence policy. Minister, before I let you go, I know this discussion has so far focused on the threat, of course, posed by Russia through Ukraine, uh, but I wanted to touch on the threat posed to Canada through China, and in particular the military confirming this week that Chinese monitoring buoys were discovered and retrieved last fall in the Arctic. Have there been additional discoveries since then? Well, that is correct. We did interdict and retrieve 
those boys and were successful in doing so to protect and defend our country against any threats from China or otherwise. Uh, in terms of operational security, however, I am limited in terms of the amount of information that I can share publicly. Uh, we need to make sure that we are protecting and defending our country and that sometimes means that I can't share all details of such operations. But rest assured, whether it is cylindrical objects over central Yukon, which NORAD successfully shot down a few weeks ago, or whether it is boys in the Arctic, we are on top of it because we recognize that there can be multiple different types of threats in the air, at sea, and otherwise. Uh, and respectfully, Minister, I do understand that uh, obviously you have national security concerns, and I understand that you couldn't divulge everything of the operation uh, that, that first discovered those. But what I'm trying to I guess ascertain for Canadians watching is who, who have followed that spy balloon and it getting shot down and then the three, uh, the, the three objects after that. Uh, you know, I'm trying to quantify or qualify the threat China poses to Canada. And that's why I'm asking you, are there, for example, a series of boys thereafter which have been intercepted? Or can you, ha have there been other instances? Like, what can you tell Canadians about how extensive Chinese surveillance is off the Arctic? Well, I... I'm telling you as much of information as I can, Vasi, and in particular what I am telling you is that when we see a threat posed by things like boys, we move very quickly to interdict them and retrieve them. When we see a threat over Canadian airspace, NORAD does what NORAD does best, which is to control and monitor our skies. And that's exactly what our country and our military will continue to do. Why? Because our role is to protect and defend this country and to cooperate in our multilateral alliances, be it NATO, be it NORAD, to ensure the protection and defense of our great country. At the same time, we are seeing the U.S. qualify very specifically the extent to which they view China to be an adversary. Why is it unreasonable to ask you to disclose just that? I'm not, I'm not asking you to disclose every time uh, you know, these objects have been intercepted. I'm just asking you to tell Canadians what you see as the nature of the threat. Uh, it's not unreasonable at all. I'm really happy to be here to have this conversation with you. Uh, as I said, when we see a threat posed by China or otherwise, uh, we move very quickly to interdict and contain it. And that's why with the boys, for example, we did that. In terms of our broader approach on China, which may be relevant to your question, uh, we did issue our Indo-Pacific strategy. And we are, as stated in the strategy, eyes wide open on China. Okay, Minister, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much. Take good care. Coming up, we'll look ahead to the next phase of Russia's war on Ukraine. Are allies getting ready to send fighter jets? Envoys from two countries at the forefront of that debate will be here next. The ask is out, but will it be answered? As the war in Ukraine marks its first anniversary, President Vladimir Zelensky is pleading with allies to send fighter jets. And it's not just if, it's when. Zelensky insists speed is critical. Some countries, like Poland and Denmark, say they are open to the idea, but are waiting for wider consensus from the West. So how soon could allies agree to send warplanes? Is it only a matter of time? And what does the next phase of this war look like? Susanna Goshko is the British High Commissioner to Canada, and Witold Jilski is the Polish Ambassador to Canada. 
Hi, Ambassador. Hello, Hi, Commissioner. Great to have you both here on set with me. I appreciate you making the time. Great. Thank you. Uh, Hi, Commissioner. I want to start with you because the UK, among a number of other countries, uh, late last week announced some new sanctions uh, levied yeah. against Russia. And I wanted to get your perspective on how effective you think those sanctions are, particularly in light of the fact, though, we did see Russia's economy particularly hard hit at the outset of the war after the initial round of sanctions. Overall, Russia finished 2022 with a 3% contraction in its economy, which is not a big number. Uh, is there an issue with the effectiveness of those sanctions? Well, Putin himself has said that the sanctions are causing a colossal amount of difficulty for Russia. And I don't think he would have said that lightly. So I think from that we can definitely take away that they are having an impact and certainly they've had an impact on Russia's ability to replenish its military supplies for the battlefield. For example, they're having to take semiconductors out of bits of kitchen appliances and things like that to be able to restock some of their equipment and none of that would be where they want to be. On the specific figures, I've seen a projection that says that by 2026 the economy will be 11% smaller than it would have been had Russia not gone to war and that's not a small figure. So I would say sanctions are having an effect. We need to keep up the momentum and we need to keep united on it. To the ambassador's point, you know, certain sectors certainly saw a big impact. I think uh, particularly aviation and auto manufacturing, which saw an 80% decline in output because of course, as you pointed out, High Commissioner, component parts. Um, if, you, if you are looking ahead, Ambassador, to what kinds of sanctions will keep the pressure up, as again the High Commissioner pointed out? What do you think will be more effective? <clears throat> Among the sanctions that we had so far, uh, the way we see it, the most effective are sanctions on um, uh, energy sources, uh, because this is, this is the way uh, Russia, this is the way Putin and his cronies have made uh, um, uh, made money, basically. So this is an important element, this needs to continue. Um, and uh, the other other elements which is very significant is uh, is um, related to all the elements which are important for the, the Russian military industry, especially at this at this point. We know that at this point Russian, Russians are not able to uh, reproduce uh, the uh, military um, elements which require modern modern technology, and this is uh, this is very much visible on the on, on the battlefield. So this is very important. Are you concerned just to follow up in uh, Vladimir Putin's ability to say? to Russians, uh, and of course who have no outside sources of news, uh, look, they said they would crush us and, and we haven't yet been crushed. I take the point that obviously sanctions take a while to really mm -hmm. have a profound impact and the outlook is not good for years out. But he can turn to people in Russia right now and say they didn't crash us, our economy contracted but only by a bit. Inflation was sky high, we brought it down to something in and around where it is in the UK for example. I think for many of us um, uh, who are not experts, um, it would seem that with the first package of sanctions and the first, second and so on package of, of, of sanctions, uh, there would be a direct hit on, on the Russian economy. And there were elements of that. But it is worth uh, understanding that uh, um, Russia is uh, quite resilient in, uh, in, in that regard it, uh, um, in, in terms of society. Uh, this is a society which part, big part of the Russian society lives in a uh, it, it's a third world country, really. I mean, they don't have electricity, they don't have running water, so the sanctions uh, do not necessarily hit them in such a manner. However, if you listen to the, uh, to the quite boring speech of, of, of Putin a couple of days ago, um, you could hear that uh, he's a little bit angry with, his, uh, with the big business. 
and he, uh, he, he, he told the big business that uh, uh, they should not complain about the sanctions, which means they do complain, and it is an issue. It is an internal issue in Russia, and it, uh, it will have its consequences. I want to turn and ask about what this war looks like going forward as we enter the second year of Russia's war on Ukraine, High Commissioner, and in particular, uh, the potential for a deadly offensive to be mounted by Russia, and then the necessity of, of Ukraine's counter offensive rather uh, to that in the spring. Um, Ukraine has asked very specifically for fighter jets to help it mount that counteroffensive. Are you sympathetic to that ask, High Commissioner? Well, we're also concerned about a spring offensive and we think the priority has to be giving Ukraine everything it needs to be able to defend itself against that. Now, our view on that is our Prime Minister has asked the Defence Secretary to look at what can be done on jets, but we're pretty clear that that's a medium-term ask. They're not going to be there. Those will take some time to supply if, if we were to do it, and at the moment we're just looking at it. Same with training, which we're doing of pilots. That takes some time to come online. And so what we're prioritising at the moment is those things that can be delivered really quickly. So we've sped up, for example, the delivery of the tanks that we're providing and the armoured vehicles and artillery. And we're determined to get that there as quickly as possible so that Ukraine is in the best possible position to defend itself against what we suspect is coming. Poland has been very specific about saying uh, your country is willing to supply MiGs, but, and it's a big but, that supply would have to be backfilled by other countries in NATO, for example, um, and or they would have to join in, in lo loaning those fighter jets. Uh, the UK has been one of the least reticent countries to, to engage in that conversation, but there are others like the US, right, which, which ha have appeared to, at this point, draw a line in the sand. Do you think the line becomes a little less definitive moving forward? <clears throat> I remember President Duda uh, going to Kyiv one day before the war started. They hugged with President Zelensky at that time, and President Zelensky to told my president that uh, it may be, may be the last time they see each other. And President Duda told him that we will do everything that is, so that it, it doesn't happen. And since that time, we, we were, um, Poland was on the lead, and President Andrzej Duda in particular, I would say, um, with all the announcements and all the pushing uh, that we did. And uh, the, the issue of uh, fighter jets is uh, much more complicated, as we all understand. But uh, on Friday, uh, on, the, on, the, on the anniversary of, of the invasion, um, uh, President Duda also suggested that uh, the, the one way or the other, at some point, the fighters, fighter jets will, will, will get there. But it is, again, we all understand that it is much more complicated on many levels. Do you view it also, High Commissioner, as more complicated, and, and just for people watching, that the, the complication is basically that uh, the, the way in which it is perceived by Russia, right? It, it's another sort of ratcheting up of involvement from the West, which he already perceives as waging war on yeah. Russia. At the same time, a year ago, if we were having this conversation, we all probably would have thought sending tanks would do the same thing. Look, I, I don't accept that. This war can end tomorrow by Putin withdrawing his troops from Ukraine. It's as simple as that. There's no equivalence here at all. Russia is the aggressor. Ukraine is defending itself. Ukraine is, frankly, fighting on all of our behalfs because you don't appease people like Vladimir Putin, and we owe it to them to give them the means to defend themselves in every way possible. Okay, I'll leave our discussion there. I really appreciate both of you making the time. Thank you, Ambassador, and thank, thank you, you High so Commissioner.
When we come back, is it time to renegotiate what's known as the Safe Third Country Agreement? That's what the Prime Minister says will deal with an increase in irregular border crossings at Roxham Road in Quebec. After the break, we're going to speak to John Manley, who was the Deputy Prime Minister who signed the original agreement more than two decades ago. Stay right there. U.S. President Joe Biden's first official visit to Canada happens next month. And Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says the Safe Third Country Agreement will be on the agenda. The agreement and irregular border crossings are sparking a war of words between Trudeau and his opposition. If we are a real country, we have borders. And if this is a real prime minister, he is responsible for those borders. Could somebody put up barricades and, uh, and a big wall? Uh, yes, if Pierre Polyov wants to build a wall at Roxham Road, someone could do that. The problem is we have 6,000 kilometers worth of undefended shared border with the United States. Here's how the agreement works. If someone's coming through the U.S. to seek asylum in Canada and comes to an official point of entry at the border, they're going to be turned back. Same goes in the other direction. But... And it is a big but, there's a loophole. The deal only applies to those official points of entry, prompting asylum seekers to cross in between the points by foot at a place like Roxham Road in Quebec. Last year, 39,000 people did just that. Quebec's Premier, Francois Legault, says his province does not have the capacity to deal with that volume. And Conservative leader Pierre Polyev is urging the feds to come up with a plan to shut down the crossing within a month. So is it time for the Safe Third Country Agreement to be renegotiated? With me now, John Manley, who was Deputy Prime Minister at the time the agreement was signed back in 2002. Hi, Mr. Manley. Good to have you on our program. Thanks for making the time. Thanks, Rashi. Uh, before we get to you know, the current issues facing the Safe Third Country Agreement and, and the Roxham Road portion of the Canada-U.S. border, I wanted to get your perspective as someone who signed that agreement about what was at the heart of it? What was the motivation really to create the agreement in a post-9-11 world? Well, this you're right. It was post-9-11. It was part of what we call the Smart Border Accord that uh, I was in a position to negotiate with a very skilled team of bureaucrats with the United States, which was led at the time by uh, their team was led by Governor Tom Ridge, later the first uh, U.S. Sec uh, Secretary of Homeland Security. We, the Safe Third Agreement was something that we were asking for, and we and that the U.S. was actually reluctant to give. Uh, we asked for it because we were facing um, a, quite a large inflow of refugee claimants. So, was there discussion at the time about what is now referred to as a loophole in the agreement? The fact that. If people are coming from the States to seek asylum, they're turned back to the States. If it's at an official point of entry, however, in between those points, um, it, it doesn't apply. Was, was that part of the discussion or, or envisioned in any way? No, because those, the notion that people would come en masse through illegal points of entry uh, seemed unlikely at the time. Um, it, it just wasn't... Hmm. It wasn't, it wasn't a factor. We didn't really expect it to become one, and, and indeed it didn't become one for quite a long time. Uh, but I think many of the reactions to, the, to people coming in without having followed the process are the same. Whether they come in illegally um, you know, at, a, at a rural site or whether they come to the border and claim refugee status, I think uh, the, problem, the problem is that... Uh, Canadians 
are very welcoming and accepting of refugees. I don't think there's any doubt about that. The recent events with Ukraine have demonstrated that. The welcoming of Syrians demonstrated that. But Canadians believe that people are abusing their uh, their generosity, that they're jumping the queue somehow. Uh, then that sympathy and that support for being open and welcoming to refugees will will wane, and um, and it's the same whether they're they're crossing, you know, as they are now on an illegal site, or whether they were crossing at a legal site. You mentioned the reluctance initially of the United States in in those negotiations. We now know from the federal government that. They have been uh, engaging in, as they characterize it, negotiations with the United States for a while now to try and, quote-unquote, modernize the agreement. Do you think there is a way to amend the agreement or, or see it evolve so that it does address the issues, uh, for example, of what's happening uh, at Roxham Road? Well, that's really a question for the Americans. I can tell you that this was a very difficult agreement to achieve. Um, Tom Ridge went to bat for us for this uh, this particular agreement. It was something that he had to get approved by the U.S. Attorney General. They didn't want to do it. Uh, there were things, of course, that we gave in exchange for it. I can't remember now what items there were in that 22-point smart border accord that were of particular interest to them, uh, probably some harmonization of visa rules. Um, but... Um, I think there will be a lot of reluctance on the part of uh, U.S. authorities to uh, give this to Canada without something in return, and I don't know what there might be that we could give in return. So when you look at the issue as it stands, um, you, you know that the political debate is either have it apply to the whole border or suspend it or scrap it. Do you think the agreement is still applicable, should still be relevant, is still relevant, or, or do you think there needs to be a kind of a wholesale look at the system as it exists right now? I, I think there's a, there's a separate issue there, which is um, Canada's ability to control its own borders. Now, I know it's simplistic to say, why don't you just block Roxham Road? And the, and, and the government's right to say, well, if we do that, they'll just come in somewhere else. Possibly true. Uh, but fundamental to the nation's sovereignty is the ability to control our borders. So I think when there is abuse of the border, then it's the government's responsibility to try to figure out a way to stop that. For us to suspend the agreement would simply be to open up the, uh, the flow uh, that we had uh, leading up to 2003, which was coming in uh, through legal means it's a lot safer first of all a lot easier uh, but uh, doesn't solve the problem for us there is no shortage of refugees in the world uh, the world is awash in refugees i've been in the biggest refugee camp in the world in dadaab in northern kenya and it breaks your heart and canada should be welcoming and receiving many of those refugees it's our responsibility as a wealthy country but we should choose them, and they should come in on a manner in which we uh, provide for their support. The federal government has some responsibility because of its control of the borders to do that. We shouldn't be leaving cities and provinces stranded because of an uncontrolled uh, flow of people coming in claiming to be refugees. Okay, Mr. Manley, I'm going to leave it there. I'm out of time. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Fashi. 
After the break, Tories under fire. Some conservative MPs are saying sorry after meeting with a far-right German politician known for her anti-Islamic and anti-Semitic views. As the Tories gain in the polls, does this expose a persistent political vulnerability for them? Our Sunday strategy session with Tom Mulcair, Tory tonight rather, and Scott Reed will be here to weigh in on that next. As polling shows the Conservatives gaining momentum nationally, a new controversy is hitting the party. This week, three Conservative MPs, including former leadership candidate Leslin Lewis, Colin Carey and Dean Allison, met with Christine Anderson, a far-right politician and a member of the Alternative for Germany party. Anderson's party is known to be anti-immigrant, anti-Islamic and anti-Semitic. The party's leaders, for example, have called Holocaust memorials shameful and defended Holocaust deniers. Anderson's visit to Canada included meetings with Freedom Convoy organizers and supporters like Tamara Leach. Consistently, we see conservative parliamentarians and people who should know better associating themselves with folks responsible for a particularly vile level of rhetoric and hatred. And their answer is all the same. Oh, we didn't know. Let's talk about what this means for the Tories and their newish leader, Pierre Polyev. Our Sunday strategy session is here to do just that. Corey Tonight was Ontario Premier Doug Ford's campaign manager and former director of communications for Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Scott Reid is former communications director to Prime Minister Paul Martin. And Tom Mulcair is former leader of the NDP. Good to see you today. I appreciate you making the time. Uh, Corey, I'm going to start with you, and I'm just going to read for you and our viewers the statement that Pierre Polyev released uh, in response to this reporting around uh, the three MPs of his meeting with this far-right uh, uh, German MP. Uh, Christine Anderson's views, Polyev writes, are vile and have no place in our politics. The MPs were not aware of this visiting member of the European Parliament's opinions, and they regret meeting with her. Frankly, it would be better if Anderson never visited Canada in the first place. She and her racist, hateful views are not welcome here. Uh, do you think that statement goes uh, far enough? Do you think it will kind of quell any, any scrutiny of these decisions? Well, I don't think it will quell all of the scrutiny, although the, the statement couldn't be any more clear in terms of a condemnation. But, you know, I, I think it really points to one of the challenges that uh, not just Pierre Polyev, but, uh, uh, but uh, uh, Mr. O'Toole had as well in the leadership uh, with the Michael Chong's Parliamentary Reform Act, it's very difficult for a leader to just throw out misbehaving MPs. And uh, I, I think that's normally what the punishment for something like this would be. Certainly if it happened at uh, Queen's Park, uh, I, I would anticipate these guys would be gone in, in about a nanosecond. So, But the difference is uh, you don't have that power as a conservative leader in this parliament. How problematic do you think that is for the Conservatives when this issue, Tom, continues to be a vulnerability for them? Chair Poiliev himself is seen by senior leadership in the Jewish community as being somebody who is a very strong supporter. Uh, in Toronto this week, I spoke with someone who's on the national board of CJ, the group that was criticizing this meeting, and that person used high praise. He said Poiliev is considered as solid as Harper. So it's a fact that he's very much on side. His reaction was a was an incredible stop, drop, and roll. There's going to be no further talk about this. But it's also a warning to his caucus because Corey's completely right. That bill from Michael Chong makes it more difficult to discipline MPs. But I think that Poitiev is essentially giving warning to his caucus. We're heading into a pre-electoral period. 
These things are going to be watched. We're going to be watched like hawks. Would you please smarten up? And the smarten up comes in the form, I would say, Vashi, in his note where he says, oh, they didn't know anything about this person, parenthesis, and I can't explain to you what they were doing meeting with her, close the parenthesis. Does, though, the the inability, Scott, to actually um, do something about that? Like, first of all, you're asking everyone to believe that they didn't know anything about her. But second of all, you're saying you accept that explanation and you condemn the meeting, but but there isn't really a, 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 a further action. Yeah, look, you know, before you can even contemplate the challenges associated with the process of booting somebody out of the caucus, you need to want to boot them out of the caucus. Where's the signal here that he would, he's thinking about that, that he finds it so objectionable that that's something that he would consider? Like, I, first of all, I think it stretches credulity that they were unaware of, uh, of Anderson's uh, opinions, background. I mean, it's not like the AFD is a secret. Um, if they took the time to take the meeting, then surely they took the time to find out who they were meeting with. And in addition to that, it's part and part, like, look at Leslie and Lewis and look at the history. It plugged into this anti-vax, anti-globalist, oh my God, George Soros, all this stuff, anti-immigrant rhetoric and part of all this dialogue that happens. And, you know, so I mean, the truth of the matter is this problem will persist. There will be further examples of this. There'll be further statements that'll stretch credulity. Oh, they didn't know. Oh, they shouldn't have done this. Oh, yeah, no, everybody apologizes. It's an outrageous thing, unless and until they give somebody like a Leslie Lewis the heave-ho. And it isn't just a process problem. It's a constituency issue for them. The constituency and cohort and coalition of the Conservative Party at present doesn't really give Pierre Polyev the freedom to boot her. She's got too much hand within the modern conservative movement. That's why she's in the shadow cabinet. That's why she's not being booted today. That's why Michael Chong's bill will never get tested on her. Uh, taking sort of like a step back in a 10,000-foot view, Corey, I know we've spoken about, you know, in many different instances throughout past elections how, <laughs> you know, the, the conservatives want to be talking about the economy and polling shows when that's the, when that's the case, it, it's a successful issue for them. But the liberals have also been very successful at sort of um, pointing to things like this and uh, being able to... Uh, successfully, I guess, you know, create a narrative. And not, not to say not they're, it's not their doing necessarily. They're good at highlighting what, what is a fact, what happens in these instances. How, how much of a vulnerability do you see this as, you know, for, for the Conservatives going forward? When you know the Liberals certainly won't, you know, this isn't something they're going to say, oh, okay, well, it's just a few people. Well, I, I always say the campaigns are about teamwork and discipline. Uh, and this, this demonstrates... A poor example of both. Uh, teamwork on the part of caucus for doing something so stupid on the, in the part of these three members. Uh, and, uh, and discipline. Like, you gotta, if you wanna talk about the economy and crime and those issues, you gotta not talk about all the other things that might come along. Uh, it, you know, it requires discipline on the part of everybody on the team. So, do I think this is like a fatal thing? No. Uh, is it a distraction? Yes. Is it, you know, should it be a warning to the rest of caucus to, you know, shape up and, uh, and start bringing their A game. Uh, yeah, I think it should. Like, this is an unforced error. Uh, I don't think it's, you know, the end of the world, but I, I don't think it's uh, it's very becoming for these three folks. And, and I don't, you know, and, it, and they're distracting the entire team uh, away from the issues that will win the next election for them. We saw, uh, Tom, the previous two leaders, um, uh, Mr. O'Toole and, and Mr. Shear, kind of like succumb to, to this stuff, right? And, and, and 
not really have a handle on the communications around it. What's your best advice to Polyev going forward about how to do, how to do this better? He can't throw away large groups of votes at the same time. When he went to the Frontier Institute and said, well, we often meet with people who disagree, but they had said such horrible things about the residential school situation, the tragedy, the genocide that has taken place in Canada. It was so off-putting for about a million people who are First Nations, Inuit, or Métis, and you can't write off large groups of voters like that. So you've got to keep everybody in play and let them know that you understand their important issues. The problem right now is that the Conservatives have been doing so well on the ground, fighting the Liberals every day in the House, economic issues. This is just a sign that the Liberals haven't said their last word. They're going to start fighting back on some of these other issues because, yes, as Corey says, it's a distraction. Scott, last word to you on this. Well, I mean, there's a, a bigger piece to this puzzle also, and, and, and that is the electoral math. You know, the reality, you mentioned the last two elections. At some point, these lingering questions start to become a stone wall that conservatives can't crawl over when it comes to winning seats in Ontario and elsewhere, and that's the nightmare scenario for them. Yes, this is a distraction. You, this shows on once a week, and we're talking about Pierre Polyev and this meeting, the entire segment. But, you know, the bigger challenge for Pierre Polyev is, you know, he's going to have to demonstrate how he puts it behind him. Stephen Harper did in 2004 when he had his idiot eruptions. Uh, you know, Doug Ford did when he booted Babber out of his caucus. Question for Pierre Polyev is, what are you going to do to insulate yourself from this going forward? Because this statement isn't doing anything. That's just words. Okay, we will see, I guess. Thank you very much, all three of you. Really appreciate the discussion today. Corey tonight, Scott Reed, and Tom Mulcair. When we come back, keeping China in check, we're going to break down the federal government's response so far to allegations of foreign election interference from China. The Scrum is here with Joyce Napier, Bob Fife, Sherelle Evelyn. Don't go anywhere. Investigating interference. A parliamentary committee studying foreign election interference is set to meet again this week after reports China meddled in the 2021 federal election prompted the committee to expand the scope of its existing study. According to the Globe and Mail, which viewed classified CSIS documents, China worked to get the Liberals re-elected to a minority government in 2021 and defeat conservative candidates who were viewed as hostile to China. The feds insist there is no indication the attempts ultimately influenced the outcome of the election and CSIS isn't commenting on the specifics of the story but the organization does say in part in a statement Canadians should be aware about covert and deceptive activities conducted by foreign states including the People's Republic of China and its ruling Chinese Communist Party with the intent to influence the results of democratic elections at all levels of government in Canada. Should the federal government be more open though about what it knows foreign actors are doing to meddle in our elections? The Scrum is here to answer that question. Joyce Napier is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for CTV National News. Bob Fife is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail and Sherelle Evelyn is the Hill Times Managing Editor. Hi everyone, very good Hi. to see you. Hello. When we referred Bob to the Globe and Mail viewing CSIS documents it was you very specifically who, who wrote that piece and kicked all of this off. Can you explain as succinctly as possible for Canadians watching what those documents told us about what China is potentially doing to our elections? This is the first time we've actually had specific information about the sophistication of the Chinese interference tactics, which is very detailed social uh, disinformation campaigns aimed at uh, people they regard to be unfriendly to Ch uh, China, mainly conservative MPs cash uh, 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 
donations to, to candidates or, or campaigns that uh, they think will uh, be supportive of, of China's uh, or sympathetic to China in the House of Commons. And I would hope that uh, the government would declassify the documents that we have seen and show it to the parliamentary committee because the best way to counter uh, Chinese interference or any foreign interference is through sunshine and transparency. Let's talk about those two things, sunshine and transparency, because the committee is set to, they've already looked at allegations of interference in previous elections, specifically 2019. They're going to call a lot of the same people up they've already spoken to. And from where I sit, the first time around didn't yield exactly a, a treasure trove of sunlight and transparency. Do you think the pressure on them to reveal more has been amped up vis-a-vis -vis this reporting? I mean, I would say so because now you have the prime minister saying that things are inaccurate. And, you know, the last time, you know, Mr. Fife, you know, reported on something that the prime minister said was inaccurate, you know, it was the, the act of investigating that through a parliamentary committee uh, that shone a lot of light and gave us the transparency that we, what was so sorely needed. Um, and I don't understand how, uh, you know, the prime minister and the PMO think that if they keep trying to sweep this under the rug and saying, no, 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 you're wrong, everything is fine the elections are safe I mean I can understand you know I can appreciate wanting to uh, protect people's uh, you know feelings about our democratic institutions absolutely but I think one of the ways to do that is to say okay yes let's open the doors on this let's give a little more insight into how things work so that people can now tell you know the good from the bad the right from the wrong I can I just yeah very quickly they talked to about uh, inaccuracies on Friday, he clarified that he wasn't referring to the Globe and Mail's reports as inaccuracies. He was talking about a, a reports that had happened before Christmas. Yeah, it's all a little bit confusing. But even bringing that up, Joyce, again, sort of leads me to this part that confuses me. I, I don't really understand. I take Sherelle's point, and I agree that, look, nobody wants to see what happened in this country, uh, what happened rather in the States happened here, where everyone, everyone's an election, you know, all these election deniers and this, the election was stolen. But it, th that is part of also why it confounds me that there's such resistance to being more forthcoming on this stuff. Like, like Bob and Trevo said, like if you if you open up the books, isn't that isn't that the antidote to that narrative? Absolutely. And the, and the prime minister said it himself. If we keep doubting, if these articles keep happening and questions keep coming up, uh, then people are going to start doubting whether this institution, which is one of the pillars of our democracy our electoral system has actually been tampered with by a foreign agent. First of all, by not giving us more information, by saying, oh yeah, no, don't worry about it. Uh, we've got this, uh, nothing to see here. Well, obviously there is something to see here. Read the room. And, you know, people are asking questions and their duty is to answer those questions. And one of them is, Mr. Prime Minister, your own spy agency is leaking documents. Is there a problem or that you're having? Or someone associated. Well, we don't, we don't maybe, want Bob to maybe, disclose, but yeah, I see what okay, you're saying. But yeah. those someone are CC's documents. So yeah. is, is there something there that is more nefarious than we even can imagine? And the other thing that kind of confounds me, uh, Sherelle, about why they are reticent to be more open is that everyone's posture towards China over the last eight or nine years has kind of coalesced, you know, where there might have been some more room between the parties 
2015 and 2016, the experience of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor kind of cemented the fact that China is viewed and their recent strategy, Indo-Pacific strategy, as an adversary. So again, why do they view this as a, apparently as a vulnerability? Yeah, that's it's an interesting question because I don't know if, if the if the views have necessarily coalesced. I do agree that you know everybody is trying to say yes, you know what we need to put China in its place in this box. But to the degree to which that happens, I think has not quite been cemented. I mean, obviously, you know, throughout the the two Michaels uh, incarceration, uh, you know, there was a lot of tiptoeing around trying not to make China angry. Um, you know, in the lead up to the Indo-Pacific strategy, we saw we heard a little bit of a different tone. But even now, though, you're not quite seeing the same amount of uh, virulence against China that you had even just a few months ago. So I don't know if there's part of a bigger strategy here where we were not necessarily seeing what's going on, you know, behind the scenes. But it's not as aggressive as I think a lot of people and a lot of the opposition parties might like. Yeah, that's a fair point. Last word to you, Bob. Do you think this committee will actually produce some sunlight transparency, as you call it? Well, no, because unfortunately, the government will not provide them uh, with the documents that they would be able to right. uh, to see the extent of, of Chinese interference in the election campaigns. You've, we've all seen the documents. They're all blacked out, so we can't see any of this. And uh, the, the officials that appear before and, and the ministers that appear before keep saying, well, it never affected the outcome. But nobody is saying that it affected the outcome. It's talking, you know, the... the, the, the Liberals won more seats than the Conservatives, but any effort to defeat Conservative MPs or people that they don't think uh, are, would advocate or are critical of China, that is a serious issue that we must take seriously, all Canadians, regardless of what, which political party you support. Because the intent is there, yeah. right? And once the intent is there, then, you know, there should be more transparency. There yeah. was a target, and the target was the Canadian election. So the Prime Minister probably has a duty to tell Canadians, not, okay, we've got this, don't worry, right. but what is really going on. We'll look into it. Yeah. Okay. okay, I'm going to leave it there. Thanks very much, Joyce Napier, Sherelle Evelyn, and Bob Fife. And before we go today, here are the three things I'm watching for this week. More House committee meetings, as we were just discussing, on Canada-China relations. The committee has voted to ask ministers like Melanie Jolie, Marco Medicino, and Dominic LeBlanc, plus officials from the RCMP, CSIS, and Elections Canada. So there will be a lot to watch there. I'll also be watching for more health deals. Ottawa has already reached health funding agreements now with Manitoba, Ontario and the Atlantic provinces. I'll be looking to see what happens particularly in Alberta and Saskatchewan. And then we have our eyes peeled for a date for the U.S. President's visit to Canada. My sources are telling me it will happen near the end of March. We're waiting for confirmation on that and it could happen next week. That does do it though for us this week. Thank you so much for watching today. I'm Vashti Capellos and I will see you tomorrow on Power Play. Have a great one.